Chapter 11 of True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Schufelt. True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World by Adolphus W. Greeley. Chapter 11 The Heroic Devotion of Lady Jane Franklin. So many saints and saviors, so many high behaviors, Emerson. In the discovery of the Northwest Passage and in Pym's timely sledge journey, there have been sketched various heroic phases connected with the last voyage of Sir John Franklin and the expeditions of the Franklin search. In the search, there were employed 33 ships and nearly 2,000 officers and men, whose utmost endeavors during a period of eight years, and at an expense of many millions of dollars, had failed to obtain any definite information as to the fate of the missing explorers. One clue had come from private sources, as shown in the tale of Dr. Ray and the Franklin Mystery. This present narrative sets forth the work accomplished through the devotion of the widow of Sir John Franklin, a so-called hopeless enterprise. Sacrificing her ease and her private fortune to a sense of duty, not alone to her husband, but also to those who served under him, her labors eventually wrested from the desolate isles of the northern seas the definite secret of the fate of the expedition as a whole. After his abandonment in 1853 of four expeditionary ships of the Franklin search, Sir Edward Belker returned to England, ending what he termed the last of Arctic voyages, in which opinion the British government concurred. Lady Jane Franklin did not accept this decision as final. On April 12, 1856, in a letter to the Admiralty, she strongly urged the need for a further search saying, It is due to a set of men who have solved the problem of centuries by the sacrifice of their lives. To this letter no reply was made, and efforts for another expedition made by her friends in Parliament were equally futile. It is needless to say that even such unwanted and discourteous neglect did not silence this noble-hearted woman whose heroic devotion had been conspicuously displayed in her earlier efforts. It will be remembered that she had previously awakened the interest and engaged the active support of two great nations, Russia and the United States, in the search for the Franklin Squadron. Americans will recall with pride that moved by Lady Franklin's appeal, President Zachary Taylor in a message of January 4, 1850, urged cooperation on Congress, which took action that resulted in the expedition commanded by Lieutenant E.J. de Haven, United States Navy. In her letter to President Taylor, Lady Franklin alluded gracefully to that continent of which the American Republic forms so vast and conspicuous a portion, and says, to the American whalers, I look with more hope, being well aware of their numbers and strength, their thorough equipment, 
and the bold spirit of enterprise which animates their crews. I am not without hope that you will deem it not unworthy of a great and kindred nation to take up the cause of humanity, which I plead in a national spirit. On learning of the attitude of the American press, she wrote, I learn that the people of the United States have responded to the appeal made to their humane and generous feelings, and that in a manner worthy of so great and powerful a nation, indeed with a munificence which is almost without parallel. Now the efforts of three nations having failed, Lady Jane then resolved to undertake a final search at the expense of herself and of her sympathizing friends. There was then available the Resolute, abandoned by Belker, brought back by the American whaler J.M. Buddington, bought by the American Congress and presented to the Queen. The Admiralty would neither loan the Resolute nor any of its surplus stores suited for Arctic service. By the efforts of Lady Franklin and her friends, the steam yacht Fox was sent forth on an expedition that cost about 35,000 pounds sterling, of which the greater portion came from Lady Jane's private fortune. McClintock and Allen Young volunteered to serve without pay, and both Hobson and Dr. Walker made similar pecuniary sacrifices. At McClintock's request, Lady Jane wrote out her wishes, in which the personal element came last. She says, The rescue of any survivor on the Erebus and Terror would be to me the noblest results of our efforts. To this object, I wish every other to be subordinate, and next to it in importance is the recovery of the unspeakably precious documents of the expedition, public and private, and the personal relics of my dear husband and his companions, and lastly to confirm directly or inferentially the claim of my husband's expedition to the earliest discovery of the passage which, if Dr. Ray's report be true, and the government has accepted it as such, these martyrs, in a noble cause, achieved at their last extremity. Captain Sir Leopold McClintock sailed July 2nd, 1857, inspired by the feeling that the glorious mission entrusted to me was in reality a great national duty. He was the greatest of Arctic sledgemen, having made in unexplored parts of Pari Archipelago without dogs a sledge journey of 105 days, in which he traveled 1,210 miles. Reaching Baffin Bay, the fox had the great misfortune of being caught in the pack in the midst of summer, on August 15th. McClintock's experiences and sufferings were horrible. His assistant engineer died of an accident and for days at a time, the fox was in danger of instant destruction from gales, icebergs, and other elements attendant on life in the pack. After a besetment of eight months and nine days, in which she drifted 1,200 miles to the south, the yacht escaped, buffeted, racked, and leaking. The winter in the pack was not entirely without the presence of game. For in the beginning of November, a bear crept up to the yacht, attracted by odors from the cook's galley. Fortunately, an alert quartermaster detected his form 
outlined against the snow, and at once shouted to the dogs. Some of them ran like cowards, while others, rushing the bear, closed in on him, biting his legs as he ran. Crossing a lane of lately frozen sea, the bear broke through the new ice, followed by a number of dogs who held fast to him in the water space. One dog, old Sophie, fared badly at close quarters, receiving a deep cut in one of her shoulders from his sharp claws. It took four shots to kill the animal, it being a large male bear, seven feet three inches long. McClintock tells us that the chase and death were exciting, a misty moon affording but scanty light, dark figures gliding singly about, not daring to approach each other, for the ice trembled under their feet. The enraged bear, the wolfish howling dogs, and the bright flashes of the rifles made a novel scene. The escape from the pack was made under conditions that would turn one's hair gray in a few days. For eighteen hours, the chief stood fast at his engines, while navigation was made through very high seas, with waves from ten to thirteen feet high, which threatened to destroy the yacht by driving against her great ice floes, which shook the vessel violently and nearly knocked the crew off their legs. Return to Europe for repairs seemed inevitable, but with the thought of poor Lady Franklin in his heart, McClintock patched up the ship as best he could in Greenland, and crossing Baffin Bay, was driven after a fruitless sea search to winter quarters in Port Kennedy, 72 degrees north, 94 degrees west. Hunting filled in the winter, though most animal life had gone south. Lemmings were plentiful, about twice the size, and resembling the short-tailed field mouse. Bold and fearless, they enlivened the members of the crew. An ermine visited the ship, and being seen by one of the dogs, the pack set up a perfect pandemonium in their efforts to catch him. The beautiful snow-white creature rather unconcernedly watched the efforts of the dogs to get at him under the grating of the boat where he was safely ensconed. It was amusing to see an ermine play around the ship, and when closely pursued by man or by dog plunge into a drift of soft snow only to reappear at a considerable distance and in a quarter where least expected. It was with the active little animals a kind of hide-and-seek game which their lives for forfeit if they were caught. During Hobson's long journey to lay down an advance depot, he lost a dog actually from overcare. She had the bad habit of gnawing and eating her seal-thong harness, and to prevent this, Hobson caused her to be tightly muzzled after the evening meal. One of the numberless dogfights occurred during the night, and with the trait so common to these half-wolfish beasts, they fell on the least defenseless, and the whole pack bit and tore almost to pieces their muzzled and defenseless sister. Her wounds were so many and so deep that she died during the day. In this journey, Hobson's party barely escaped perishing through a violent northeasterly gale which drove seaward the ice pack on which they were encamped. McClintock 
says that on discovering that the entire ice field was adrift, they pack their sledge, harness the dogs, and pass the long and fearful night in anxious waiting for some chance to escape. A little distance offshore, the ice broke up under the influence of the wind and sea, and the disruption continued until the piece they were on was scarce twenty yards in diameter. Impelled by the storm, in utter darkness and amid fast-falling snow, they drifted across a wide inlet. The gale was quickly followed by a calm and an intense frost in a single night, formed ice-strong enough to bear them safely to land, although it bent fearfully under their weight. Their escape was indeed providential. Death spared these men of action in the field, but it invaded the ship, and Brand, the engineer, died of apoplexy. When the sun came back after 73 days of absence, McClintock decided to take the field and started February 14th, earlier than any previous Arctic traveler for an extended journey. His great hope of success depended on finding Eskimos in the region of the North Magnetic Pole, which entailed a trip of 400 and 20 miles in temperatures as much as 80 degrees below the freezing point. Sledging through an unknown country, wearily breaking day after day a trail for his emaciated, untrained dogs, McClintock vainly searched the unbroken snowy wastes for trace of sledge or of man, and anxiously scanned the dreary landscape for sight of the longed-for igloo or hut. The cold was intense, the land was barren of game, the region seemed accursed in its desolation, while the conditions of travel were hard in the extreme. The absence of human life was far more distressing to the heroic McClintock than the rigors of the journey, for without Inuit aid the labors and sufferings of his crew and of himself would be unavailing. Was it possible that the region was abandoned by beast and so by man? Was his mission destined to be a failure? Could he succeed without Eskimo help? He reached the magnetic pole without seeing anyone, his dogs in such fearful plight that he could advance but one day farther. Six of the dogs were then useless, and during the journey, the poor animals had so suffered from poor food, intense cold, and bad snow that several of them had repeatedly fallen down in fits. When he was quite in despair, several Eskimos returning from a seal hunt crossed his trail and visited his camp. From the winter colony of 45 Boothians, he gained his first tidings of the missing explorers. One native said that a three-masted ship had been crushed by ice to the west of King William Land, but the crew came safe to shore. Another told of white men who starved on an island, probably Montreal, where salmon came. That the men had perished was quite clear from the abundance of Franklin relics among the Eskimos, buttons, knives, forks, McDonald's medal and a gold chain, which McClintock bought at the average price of one needle each. None of the Inuits had seen the whites, but one native had seen some of their skeletons. 
An example of the disregard of the natives for extreme cold made McClintock shiver with pity and anger. He says, One pertinacious old dam pulled out her infant by the arm from the back of her large fur dress and quietly held the poor little creature perfectly naked before me in the breeze, the temperature at the time being 60 degrees below the freezing point. McClintock at once gave her a needle for which she was thus begging but was considerably alarmed for the infant's safety before it was restored to the warmth of its mother fur hood. Active sledding, meantime, by Young, Walker, and Hobson had no results beyond snow blindness, freezings, and other sufferings for these resolute and efficient officers. McClintock himself, on his return, was scarred by frostbites, his fingers calloused by frequent freezings, and his body thin with scant food, which made him eat, Boothian fashion, frozen blubber in delicate little slices. These physical hardships were as nothing in return for the mental satisfaction of tidings of Franklin, with intimations as to the locality of the regions in which further research would doubtless produce results. He was determined to explore the whole King William region, and thus obtain further information as to the fate of the second ship. McClintock then outfitted his sledge party for a journey of 84 days, with Hobson as assistant, while Young was to establish supporting depots of food, the field of operations to the southwest of the magnetic pole. The journey to the Boothian village was like other Arctic travel under bad conditions. The uncomplaining leader tells us that despite colored glasses, their eyes were inflamed and nearly blinded, while the tale was further told by their blistered faces, frostbitten members, cracked lips, and split hands. The discomfort of their camps may be inferred from the fact that it took an entire day to clear from accumulated ice and hoarfrost their sleeping bags and camp gear. The exhausting character of their march is evident from the load of 200 pounds hauled by each man and the 100 pounds pulled by each dog. Two Boothian families now told McClintock that one ship sank and that the other broke up on shore, where she was forced by the ice. The body of a very large man with long teeth had been found in the ship, visited by the Inuits. The crew had gone, taking boats along, to the large back river, where the bones were later found. An old Eskimo woman and boy had last visited the wreck during the preceding winter, 1857-8. to eight. On leaving the magnetic pole, in order to extend the field of research, Hobson was sent down the west coast of King William Land. McClintock, following the land to the east of that island, fell in with 40 natives who confirmed the information earlier obtained, and from whom he bought silver plate marked with the crests of Franklin, Crozier, Fairholme, and MacDonald. It was the middle of May when he reached snow-clad Montreal Island, which he fruitlessly searched with as much thoroughness as was possible under conditions of blizzard weather and zero temperatures. Of his travel troubles, he tells us that driving a wretched dog team for six weeks had quite exhausted his stock of patience. 
he relates, None of the dogs had ever been yoked before, and they displayed astonishing cunning and perversity to avoid whip and work. They bit through their traces, hid under the sled, leaped over each other until the traces were plated, and the dogs nodded together. I had to halt every few minutes, pull off my mitts, and, at the risk of frozen fingers, disentangle the lines. When the sledge had stopped, or stuck fast in deep snow, the perfectly delighted dogs lie down, and the driver has to himself extricate the sledge and apply persuasion to set his team in motion. His hopes of finding tangible information as to the Franklin records had been centered on Montreal Island, which Ray's report indicated as the scene of the final catastrophe. McClintock's thorough search of that region had been futile. Must he return to England and face Lady Franklin with the admission that her years of effort and her sacrifice of personal fortune had produced no additional results? Was the fate of England's noted explorers to remain always a mystery? Were the records of work done and of courage shown by the officers and the men of the Royal Navy lost forever to the world? A thousand like and unbidden thoughts filled incessantly the tortured brain of this the greatest of Arctic sledgemen. However, it was not in the nature of this noble-hearted man to despair utterly or to cease from labors to the very end. Sick at heart and worn in body, the indefatigable McClintock turned shipward and almost despairingly took up the search of the south coast of King William Land. Here, he tells us, on a gravel ridge near the beach, partially bare of snow, I came upon a human skeleton, now perfectly bleached, lying upon its face. This poor man seems to have fallen in the position in which we found him. It was a melancholy truth that the old woman spoke when she said, they fell down and died as they walked along. Sad as many a pair, the fate of this man, one of the rank and file of the expedition, his indomitable courage in struggling to the last moment of his life, will always stand as an instance of the high endeavor and heroic persistency of the British race. Welcome as was the indirect information obtained in this and in other places nearby, McClintock's heart was supremely gladdened at finding in a small cairn prominently placed a note from Hobson who had found an abandoned boat in which were two skeletons with crested silver, etc., and most vital of all, a record from Franklin's expedition. It appears that Hobson found on the south side of Back Bay, King William Land, a record deposited by Lieutenant Graham Gore in May 1847. It was in a thin tin soldered up cylinder and proved to be a duplicate of the record also found by Hobson at Point Victory. The latter record was in an unsoldered cylinder which had fallen from the top of the cairn where it was originally placed. It was written on one of the printed blanks usually furnished to surveying and to discovery ships to be thrown overboard in a sealed bottle, with a request to return it to the Admiralty. This written record in full ran as follows. H.M. Ships, Erebus and Terror, 28th of May, 1847. Wintered in the ice in latitude 
70 degrees, 5 minutes north, longitude 98 degrees, 23 minutes west. Having wintered in 1846-7 at Beachy Island in latitude 74 degrees, 43 minutes north, longitude 91 degrees, 39 minutes, 15 seconds west. After having ascended Wellington Channel to latitude 77 degrees and returning by the west coast of Cornwallis Island, Sir John Franklin commanding the expedition. All well. Party consisting of two officers and six men left the ships on Monday 24th, May 1847. Graham Gore Lieutenant. On the margin of the above record, was written the following. April 25th, 1848. H.M. ships Terror and Erebus were deserted on the 22nd of April. Five leagues north-northwest of this having been beset since the 12th of September, 1846. The officers and crew consisting of 105 souls under the command of Captain F.R.M. Crozier landed in latitude 69 degrees, 37 minutes, 42 seconds, longitude 93 degrees, 41 minutes west. This paper was found by Lieutenant Irving under the cairn supposed to have been built by Sir James Ross in 1831. Four miles to the northward, where it had been deposited by the late Commander Gore in May, erased and therefore substituted June 1847. Sir James Ross Pillar has not, however, been found, and the paper which has been transferred to this position, which in that in which Sir J. Ross Pillar was erected, Sir John Franklin died on the 11th of June 1847, and the total loss of death in the expedition has been to date nine officers and 15 men. F.R.M. Crozier, Captain and Senior Officer, James Fitzjames, Captain HMS Erebus, and start tomorrow 26 for Backs Fish River. These are the only records that have ever been found, and the thorough search made by Hall, Schwatka, and Gilder made it most improbable that any other will ever be discovered. The heroic persistency of Hobson in locating these precious papers is akin to that shown by the steward who fell down and died as he walked. When ten days out from the ship, Hobson found that he was suffering from scurvy, but he went on and in a month walked lame. Near the end of his journey of seventy-four days, he was not able to walk more than just a few yards at a time, and so he had to allow himself to be dragged on the sledge. When he arrived at the ship, he was neither able to walk nor even to stand without assistance. Worthy comrades were Sir Alan Young and Dr. Walker, whose strenuous and cooperating labors made this success possible, for which they also paid the price in physical suffering and in impaired health. McClintock himself played many parts, for with his two engineers dead, he stood at a critical time 24 consecutive hours at the engine, while Young, from the crow's nest, piloted the fox out of the ice pack on her homeward voyage in August 1859. With characteristic modesty, McClintock dwells lightly on his own work and ends his story with a merited tribute to those heroic men 
who perished in the path of duty, but not until they had achieved the grand object of their voyage, the discovery of the Northwest Passage. While the self-sacrificing heroism of McClintock and of his loyal companions solved the mystery of the English sailor dead, which their powerful government had been unable to reveal, yet the initiation and in part the prosecution of this work were due to the wifely and patriotic devotion of Lady Jane Franklin. Well and truly has it been said of this true woman, so long as the name of Franklin shall be bright in the annals of British heroism, with the unwearied devotion and energy of his widow, be with it remembered and honored. End of chapter 11